It is no exaggeration to say that today's guest is one of the world's master playwrights, whose work over the past 50 years has had an incalculable impact, not only theatrically, but socially. From his earliest plays, including The Blood Knot and Hello and Goodbye, to his mid-period triumphs with Siswi Bonzi is Dead, The Island, A Lesson from Aloes, and Master Harold and the Boys, to his more recent dramas, including The Captain's Tiger, Playland, Sorrows and Rejoicings, Coming Home, and The Trainmaster, which is now receiving its U.S. premiere at the Long Wharf Theater, he has set a standard for both political drama and potent human insight while chronicling life in South Africa for audiences internationally. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I am profoundly honored to welcome Athel Fugard. Thank you. Athel, let me start with... The Train Driver, which premiered in South Africa and is now being done here in New Haven. Your work has so much of the political and the personal in it over the years. Where do you place this play on that spectrum? Well, it deals with, I think, well, firstly, it's a very personal play. I have gone on record already in interviews in South Africa as saying that for me personally this is the most important play I've written I see everything that precedes this play as stepping stones to this particular particular work um, because of what it means to me personally so to start with in terms of those two uh, ends of the spectrum, the personal and the political. I would say its bias is very personal, but I do know also that it reflects one of the most urgent issues facing South Africa still today, which is the question of reconciliation between the various races. Because although the new South Africa is digging a deep hole for the year in which we hope to bury apartheid, the truth of the matter is that the apartheid is not yet completely dead. And if you were to just read the newspapers and follow what is happening in South Africa today, you'd realize that prejudice, blindness, ignorance, fear are as alive today as they were in the past. Without giving away much of the play, it concerns a train engineer who accidentally causes the death of a woman and her yes. child. And we learned that very early on. Is he meant to represent someone who was, until this incident, content with the status quo, perhaps what you just described? Yes, absolutely. And I think that his journey is from somebody who was complacent in the beginning to somebody who is emotionally shattered in the course of the, the consequences of killing that woman on the railway tracks, to somebody who arrives at an understanding of himself and begins a journey towards redemption at the end. Some of your plays are stories that were suggested to you, either by people that you heard about, knew, or read about. Is this based in a particular incident? Yes, very definitely. In December 
1999. I read in a South African newspaper, the Mail and Guardian, I read it online because I was in America at the time, the story of a woman called Pumla Lolwana, who took her three children and stood waiting for a train on the railway line between Cape Town and the squatter camps that surround that city. And when a train was approaching at a moment when the accident was unavoidable, she stepped out onto the tracks with her three children in her arms and was killed together with the children. All four of them killed instantly. And when I read the story, I had a sense as I've had many times in the past with incidents as you mentioned I have been provoked by incidents or things I've read or things I've seen to go on to write a play about them I had a sense that this was also going to be one of those I call them appointments this was an appointment I would have to keep at some time in my life and you read that article you said in 99? 99. So, so, it's so an it was two years later. Hmm. Two years later, in fact, on my 70th birthday, that I started writing. I set up a separate notebook to deal with what was going to come out of me. I didn't know what was going to come out of me. I didn't know what form it was going to take. Uh, I had tried a little bit on, on occasions in my life to... Uh, work in prose although I primarily am and I think I am and best at playwriting I have tried prose as well and when I first decided on that 70th birthday morning that I was going to deal with Pumla Lolwana that the time had come to deal with her I wasn't really aware of what was going to happen I just knew I had to start living with her as it were daily every day at my desk where I write and I then logged every day the thoughts I had about herself and her action and what I could possibly do with them and to cut a long story short after I don't know how many days weeks and I think it went on to be months I finally realized that I wasn't going to get anywhere with it that somehow I couldn't turn Pumla Lolwana's story as it stood nakedly in that newspaper item I'd read into a play or a novel and the reason for that was very simple I am by nature an optimist and what I realised about Pumla Lolwana that that act of hers in taking her children and committing suicide on the railway track was an act born out of such a sense of despair and loneliness and of darkness I have sensed that there was no hope left in life for her that I could not penetrate that darkness I could not deal with it and I in a sense after having come to some sort of terms with the fact that she was dead and that I had tried um, I left the story but it was two or three years later that I realized that there was another way possibly in which I could deal with it. And that was through the train driver in question, the train engineer. 
the man who had been behind the controls of that big diesel locomotive that had destroyed her and her children. Because being a man, being a white South African, he had an experience which I could deal with. I could understand. He was and could be me. And that led in various stages to the writing of this play, The Train Driver, in which I have tried to deal with the trauma that he experienced and the consequences of it. You said that you end up with appointments of things that you will write. What is the longest appointment you've ever had between the time you first experienced uh-huh. something and the time you put it on paper? Oh. Or knew, knew that you would write about it and got uh, no really got hesitation, down. No hesitation in answering that question. Master Harold and the boys. Because mm. that goes back to a moment in my early youth. I don't know if I was yet in my teens. I can't remember my exact date. When coming out of a very, very desperate situation, which as a little boy at that point in my life I could not understand, a situation involving an alcoholic father and a mother who was struggling to keep a family going to, to be the breadwinner, and a situation in which I was befriended by two beautiful black men who worked for my family who worked for my mother in the little tea room she had of, but initially in the little boarding house she ran um, coming out of a moment of desperation I spat in one of those men's face and that moment still is one of the most scalding and mortifying experiences in my life but I came to terms with it or try to come to terms with it I think it must have been all of 30, 30 years later 30 maybe even more than 30 close to 40 years later when I wrote Master Harold and the Boys I'd made several attempts before then because one of the real impulses in writing that play there were two impulses finally obviously Finally, there was a question of what I myself had done to this one man, the man called Sam Samila, uh, who was like a surrogate father to me. But initially, in my attempts to deal with that story, it was to celebrate these two beautiful men. Because I realized that in terms of the life I, led, I had led, and that remains as true today as it ever was in the past, they are those two are the most beautiful human beings that I have had the privilege to know. Your plays are predominantly premiered in South Africa. Yes. And subsequently, we see them in the U.S., and they are also regularly done in Great Britain and surely in other countries as well. Because of the understanding that a South African would have of the milieu of the plays. Do audiences perceive them differently? Do they play differently in different countries? Um, well, you know, I've had a very important experience uh, 
and a very privileged experience in discovering that somehow or the other stories that I have tried to tell on the stage resonate as much but in maybe you're right in a different way but resonate certainly for audiences in the very first instance in America which is why I spend so much time here I mean if it hadn't been for American audiences and American theatre and American artistic directors of theatres particularly in the uh, in the in the regional theatres uh, I don't think I would have been sitting here talking to you today because easily four-fifths of what I earn as a playwright I earn in America and that has allowed me a very privileged existence in the sense that I have been able to live by my writing not many young playwrights could say that as early as I was able to say that but that is thanks to America I mean I know I've also supplemented my earnings by being an actor and also the director of my plays uh, which both of which functions I have now um, in a sense step back from and try to I try to just be the writer that I am essentially the essential Ethel Fugard is the playwright not the director not the actor uh, I enjoyed both both of those and I just had a sense again of course of being a director because in Cape Town I directed the premiere of The Train Driver and it was again a very rewarding experience but now I sort of work just as a playwright there are a number of playwrights who choose to direct their own work. I don't think offhand I know of any who direct, write, and act. And that began really very early on for you, the very earliest days. How much of that was practical? How much of it was artistic? Or how much of it was, <laughs> as you say, um, financial? Um, well, the financial aspect of it never really occurred to me early on. I was forced into taking on those two other functions, that of directing and acting. Because when I wrote my first plays in South Africa, nobody else wanted to do them. It was as simple as that. If I myself hadn't got together with the actors and said, let's look for a place where we can do this, Let's uh, let me see if I can sort out the traffic on stage. Let me see if I can also act maybe this one role that needs to be acted. I mean, that is how Zakes Mokai, the very famous Zakes Mokai, and I started off with the blood knot. You know, we we just got together in an attic space, turned it into a little theatre, and proceeded to direct ourselves and that more or less was the way it had to go with the next three or four plays that I wrote it was certainly the way um, Hello and Goodbye was done it was also the way I worked on Busman and Liana both cases directing as well as acting and then as I began to become more established earn my reputation and when people began to realise that my plays were in fact marketable um, I I was offered the opportunity of other directors 
but for the longest time and for one simple reason I chose to continue to be the director and sometimes the actor I wanted to make certain that a play when it was given its first moment on a stage and that is an incredibly vulnerable time for a for a new play it is as vulnerable a time for a new play as the first moments of a newly born baby's life are it is totally exposed and it can be it can really be destroyed very easily by rough handling and i knew that by virtue of being the director myself and the acting in it i would at least ensure that the text i had written and the intentions with which i had written that text would be there on the stage when you were writing especially in the early years did you consciously think about writing parts for yourself or did you write the part and then choose to play it i've always believed that you must make that the actor must uh make an attempt to fit the part you must not tailor the part for an actor that is to take away from you as a writer a necessary freedom to go in whatever direction you want to go with that particular role or that particular character if you are if you are thinking of one particular actor you're going to start saying to yourself well is he or she capable of that sort of development that switch in mood that change and you start to limit your choices but you've got to be free you've got to be free at the desk when you are putting those words on paper to go in whatever direction you want to go with the text since you've mentioned him i wanted to talk a bit about some of the people you have most frequently collaborated with so i'd like to ask you tell me about working with Zakes Mackay who was a musician initially and you convinced him to become an actor full time what was it you saw in Zakes and what was that relationship over so many years well let me start off by saying that one of the great blessings and there were many of them are the handful of people who have come into my life initially as actors i'm thinking of zakes mokai i'm thinking of ivan bryceland a who's my actress. next person to ask about <laughs> i'm thinking of john carney and winston and chona <laughs> now you know you have my list <laughs> <laughs> now without those actors and um let me also add that in this latest in the last stage of my life particularly here at Yale Rep it was Susan Hilferty major major and continues to be one of my major resources in terms of my writing i think susan gets a new play that i've written before anybody else and the, the response that i most desperately wait for is hers let's stay with susan we'll come back to the others why has susan become your sounding board because susan we should say for those who don't know her is 
predominantly a costume designer. She has done sets and costumes, but you have used her also as a co-director or associate director numerous times since you met. I know, and she's also worn many hats. She's also not only been an assistant in that sense and at the directing level, but and then, of course, costume designer, which is her primary, uh, for which she got her Tony, let me put it that way, which is true, of course, in Wicked. But um, she's also designed sets for me. Yeah. And, and what I discovered about Susan, and it started here in New Haven at Yale Rep, when Lloyd Richards was the artistic director of the theatre and dean of the drama school, what I discovered about Susan was that she had an ability which not many designers have of penetrating a text and being able to tell me about what its story really is. Because, you know, a writer is sometimes the last person to know what He's done with a bit of writing, what he has in fact uh, succeeded in doing. And Susan has been incredible in that respect, her penetration of a text and an understanding of what is required from all those subsidiary functions in terms of design and of direction and so forth. So that is how Susan uh, came into my life and and why she remains in my life. Now let us go back. To Zakes. Let's go with Zakes. Let's, well, Zakes, first of all, he was a, started off when I first met him, he was a jazz musician, you're quite right, playing the saxophone. I think it was a tenor sax. I had started a drama group in Johannesburg, and having nothing to do, Zakes came along to see what we were doing and to just have a good time. And I bullied him into taking on a small role in the very first full-length play of mine that exists in print today, and that's a play called No Good Friday. And Zex had a small cameo role in that, but I had an instinctive sense, and instinct has been very important for me in my relationship with actors, an intuitive sense that Zakes had much more in him than he revealed even in that little role, which he did wonderfully. He did wonderfully. So that in the next play I wrote, which is again another published play, and which, which these two plays I regard as my apprenticeship work, a play called Nongogo, uh, Zakes had a larger part. And then when it came to writing The Blood Knot, which followed those two, I had no hesitation. By that time, I had had enough experience of Zakes to know that there was a absolutely in- instinctive acting talent there. A great, se- a great sense of presence on the stage. A great sense of how to celebrate a character, to make him laugh, cry, love. And uh, that was it. You said earlier that you and Zakes directed yourselves in the original Blood Knot. How much, if at all, did Zakes contribute to the text? Not at that stage, no. Blood Knot was one of those plays I took into the rehearsal room complete. 
in fact it was over complete it was suffered from the young man's uh, terrible failing which was that it was grossly overwritten and had to be edited down I mean the first performance I think lasted four and a half hours or five hours something unbelievable tortuous experience for the audience uh, and I gradually learned I gradually learned how to discipline that desire to get a lot of words on paper the two actors that really helped me create text of course were John Carney and Winston and Chorna. why did you choose to work collaboratively nowadays we hear about what sometimes is called devised theater where people get together in a room and create a piece certainly in the era in which you were creating those pieces with them that was not as common what drove that? Well, it started off... John Carney and Winston were members, young members. They came after the group had been established and was already functioning for a couple of years with one of uh, uh, an, an earlier drama group that I'd started in Port Elizabeth called Serpent Players. And we had, simply because the actors in that group got tired of trying to adapt plays that had already been written by other writers for situations that had some relevance to their lives. We had got involved in a series of little playmaking experiments. Very simple little experiences. One of those experiences remains in print today and it's one that I'm very, very proud of. It's called The Coat. But it was a completely collaborative effort between myself and the actors. When John and Winston absolutely scared the pants off me one day, when they came to me and said, listen, we're both tired of our menial jobs. The one was working at a General Motors factory. Uh, Winston was working in a storeroom as ordinary, just as laborers. And they said, isn't there any way we can earn a living in theatre? Now, you would have to appreciate that at that point in South Africa, the notion of two black actors living off their earnings as actors, as professional actors, was the most laughable idea imaginable. It was really, it, it seemed to be totally, totally absurd. This is in a period where there were white areas... And black black areas. areas and a few areas where they could mix at this point? Oh, no. You, you could only None. mix if you did it very privately. Okay. The way the arts club used to function in London to get around the Chamberlain, Lord Chamberlain and his censorship. In South Africa, if it was a private setting, you could do what you liked. But you certainly couldn't go public. Hmm. And at first I tried to find a vehicle for John and Winston in terms of plays that already existed. I looked at early plays by Harold Pinter. I looked at plays by Sartre, a play like No Exit, Wicklow, all sorts of possibilities, but we couldn't find it. And then the two chaps said to me, can't we make a play for ourselves the way we did in the drama group and see if that won't earn us a living? And to cut a long story short, that is how Sisby Bonzi was the first of the two collaborative play, collaborated plays that came into existence. I should mention, interestingly enough, as we sit here at the Long Wharf, 
that I had the opportunity to see John Connie and Winston Nichona do Waiting for Godot. Oh, really? You did? So, so there was material for them other than that that yes, they created, exactly. which was yeah. which was interesting. Yeah. And that was it was yes. a remarkable yes. production. Your plays were increasingly recognized and began to be exported, and even jumping back to your work with Zakes, the Blood Knot was done in, I believe, it was '64. Off-Broadway. It was not your production. It was J.D. Cannon and James Earl Jones. And then certainly, Sisley Bonsley and The Island traveled with John and Winston. Um, what was the effect for you of the growing recognition of your work, which was, by its very nature, dealing with the apartheid issues in South Africa. What was it for you as a resident to get that recognition? Well, it created a kind of... uh, It meant a lot of things. It firstly made life, in a sense, a lot easier because if I wrote something, I knew I would be able to get people to read it and consider it seriously. That is the first thing. But it also meant that I... um, made me aware that I had to be very, very careful about something. Because I was commanding a bigger audience and a wider audience than just South Africans, I realized I had to be very careful that I didn't start writing for that audience in the same way that I had to be careful, had always been careful that I didn't write for an actor. I had to write the plays in my very first instance and address them and addressed my plays to the audience that mattered to me and which defined me, my South African audience. I had to write for South Africans and then by the grace of God, if there was any quality to the work, it would go further than that. But that was one of the first challenges I realized that I had to be very, very careful about because that was the advice that was given to me. When the blood knot was first done in London and Kenneth Tynan, you know, was in his glory as the reigning playwright and he damned it out of existence. Um, and I got back to South Africa licking my wounds. All the critics said, well, you see, the trouble was you had made that play too local, too, too South African. You had limited yourself by addressing that audience to South Africans. You should widen your perspective and write for a broad English audience. Well, can you imagine giving that advice to William Faulkner? Can you imagine giving that advice to 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 who to a to a Russian one of the Russian writers writing for the Russian? You know, you've got to. I'm a regional writer, and my strength as a as in, or the whatever strength or quality there is in my plays comes out of that regionalism comes out of the the fact that the plays are time and place specific. Yet, it was a very difficult place to live and do the kind of work that you were doing. Were there times where you were in danger from the government in terms of doing, telling the story as you wanted to tell? 
Well, they certainly harassed me. I mean, my wife and I had to live through a period when my passport was taken away from me because of what they saw as my uh, political sympathies. Um, we were woken up in the middle of nights to find that the house was being searched by a group of security, special branch policemen. We had our telephone chat, uh, tapped, our mail was interfered with. A, a lot of a lot of bullying, a lot of bullying. I, I was protected by virtue of the fact that I had something of a reputation overseas. And um, But what they were trying to do, and which I would never do, is make me leave the country on a one-way ticket and go into exile. I knew that for as long as I was alive and that that system prevailed, I wanted to be there with fellow South Africans experiencing it. You say that as long as that system prevailed. Certainly, officially, apartheid has been lifted, but as you said at the very beginning, it is certainly not gone from life in South Africa. You, however, have chosen to live in America for the past seven years, eight years. How does that affect you now, since your plays are still rooted in the South African experience? Well, I go back to South Africa every year. I haven't given up my home there. I still have it there, and I go back. And um, I've often thought of, wondered whether I know enough about America at this point in time to write an American play. But I've realized I don't really, although I did write one play that was set in, in America in that it took place in a, in a little sandwich shop in San Diego. But ironically, all the people in the play are in fact exiles from other countries. So it is not strictly an American play. But um, I, I believe I've stayed in touch thanks firstly to my frequent journeys, my yearly journeys back to South Africa for an extended stay in my home. And also thanks to the internet. I mean, I start off every day reading South African newspapers. I'm in contact with friends in South Africa and we write to each other. And um, how long that will continue, I don't know. Because you see, with the train driver... I have a certain sense of a closure having taken place in my life. That I've, the journey I've made as a white South African, burdened as, it, as I was and still am, with guilt and prejudice and blindness, that journey came to an end for me with a train driver. I somehow feel that in the sort of the burial that takes place in that play or the attempt to bury that takes place in that play I've also been able to get achieve a certain closure for myself as it so happens I have gone on since the train driver to write another play which uh, I believe Gordon Gordon has told me he definitely That's wants to Gordon do. Edelstein here at Long Wharf. It will be do it done here at Long Wharf. Mm -hmm. It's a play called The Blue Iris, uh, again based on something that I've experienced in South Africa that I had. So I, it doesn't, when I talk about closure, 
I don't mean that I have stopped writing plays. I think I will always be looking for the next one. I must probably go into my grave with a fountain pen in one hand and a blank sheet of paper in the other. But um, in a sense, the journey I made, as I've said before to you, I, as a white South African with a load of guilt and prejudice and blindness about life in that country, um, that I feel has come to an end. You talk about guilt. You have been illuminating the problems of the country and making the world aware of those problems for more than 50 years. Why do you personally feel guilt when you've done so much? Well, I think the best answer to that came not from my own mouth, but from the mouth of that wonderful American director who first directed The Blood Knot outside of South Africa called John Berry, who directed it in London with Kenneth Bannon and Sex Mokai. It's Ian Bannon, wasn't it? Ian, uh, Ian Bannon. What yeah. did I say? Kenneth. Kenneth Bannon. No, Ian Bannon and Zeke Smokai. And uh, that was the production that was damned out of existence by Ken Tynan. John Berry refused to lose faith in the play. And when he got to New York, he persuaded Lucille Lortel, together with another producer, I think the name was Bernstein, to put on the theatre, to put on the play in a theatre called the Cricket Theatre down in the village, which is where it um, had a very, very successful run with J.D. Cannon and Zakes Mackay. But it was in London in talking to Ian Bannon that who was having a difficulty understanding the sort of... The, the understanding the emotional life of this one, one character that he had to play, the white, the white-skinned brother, that John said to Ian Bannon, pointing to me, he, he said, and I'm quoting John now, he could only write this play about that sort of prejudice, Ian, because he has it in himself. His intimacy with prejudice is not as someone who is an observer of it, but as someone who is a practitioner of it, who has knows that he's got it in himself. And he was correct. He was correct. Hmm. I'm curious with Blood Knot that in all of the major productions... These two men, or brothers, who are colored, to use the term, and that colored is a different term than black in South Africa, and certainly different than white. That colored refers to mixed race. The major productions have always had, as far as I know, a white actor and a black actor play the role. Can the play not be done with simply a light-skinned or mixed-race black man and a darker-skinned black man whose actual heritage may be very different? Absolutely, provided one thing. You must realize that the white-skinned brother 
was able or was a candidate for passing for white. He could have possibly been a white man. And provided the light-skinned African-American is light enough to be taken for a white man, yes, of course. Because we know, certainly, in America, I can't speak for the countries, there's such a range of racial makeup now for both negative reasons from the past and positive reasons now. So, so I just always had been curious. No, I think that is a fascinating, fascinating thought, and I don't know why in the many, many, many productions of this play that has taken place, and which still happens, the blood knot still lands up on a stage somewhere in America or somewhere in the world, why it hasn't occurred to American casting agents or American artistic directors to do what you are suggesting. Cast the play with two African-American actors, the one dark, obviously, but the other one light enough to pass for white. Hmm. It would be wonderful if that happened. Hmm. Now, I want to jump back because we began talking about your collaborators and we did not talk about yet about Yvonne Bryceland. Can you talk about oh, how she came well, into your life and your work? I discovered Yvonne when I was trying to cast a play I'd written which has not had much of a life outside of South Africa called People Are Living There and Yvonne was a, an amateur actress she was working in, as an amateur in theatre in Cape Town when I spotted her and gave her a chance to go on stage in that role I realised as I did with Zakes and as I then also had was to do later on learn uh, experience with John and Winston that I was just in the presence of a natural acting talent with an extraordinary range an extraordinary range and also somebody who was tuned tuned to understand what I was trying to do with the with those female portraits that I created in my plays uh, Hester in Hello and Goodbye a magnificent performance from Yvonne in that role to Millie in People Are Living There this Hester in Hello and Goodbye is a white prostitute Millie in People Are Living There is a lower middle class landlady in a Johannesburg boarding house then Liana in Busman and Liana, a coloured woman eking out a living with her man Busman on the mud flats of the Swatkops River near Port Elizabeth, digging bait for white fishermen. Uh, Gladys in a lesson from Aloes. Miss Helen in the road to Mecca. I mean, all of those portraits, those extraordinary women that Yvonne created on stage and I think that in most probably I would say of her performance in those roles the definitive interpretations hmm. and there are not many actors I would uh, give that crown to in terms of characters in my plays I want to ask you about one other actress you directed 
a play in which your daughter played a key role. And maybe she's done many, but I'm thinking about My Children, My Africa. Who is that? My daughter? Your daughter. Oh, oh, I had a wonderful time with her in that play. I mean, I can remember a very, very good friend of mine, Joseph Lillifeld, who ended up being the editor of the New York Times. When I told him what I was going to do, he said, you're going to what? And he looked at me with horror. He said, I said, I'm going to work with my daughter and direct her in a play. And he said, that for me would be hell. <laughs> and actually... It turned out to be a very, very positive experience for both Lisa and myself. As it happened, Lisa went on to do a little bit more acting, a few more roles after that, not in my plays, but in, in other plays here in America. But what I was always waiting for is for her to discover that she had a writing talent vastly more significant than her acting talent. And she went on to discover that as I pre hoped she would and almost predicted she would and has gone on to write her first, well she wrote lots of short stories, has written lots of short stories, many of which have been anthologized and has also a few years back wrote her first novel which was very very well received and which she, she is now busy on another one. Hmm. Recently you gave an interview to The Guardian newspaper in England, in which they uh, characterized the entirety of you as being you criticizing current playwrights for their lack of political content, ambition, interest. I noted when I reread it that men, much of that piece is not actually quoting you, but paraphrasing you. I'm wondering, first... Did it fairly represent your feelings about playwrights today? No, I, I, well, I'll tell you how, what the context for that story was. I had to give that interview, I did that interview on the day when I got terribly bad news from South Africa about the government's latest attempt to control the press and to censor, censor the press, which was an action that could have come out of the apartheid years, which they did, in fact, do during the apartheid years. They censored the press. And here was what's supposed to be the government of a new South Africa doing exactly the same thing. And it just added one more, another bit of evidence to prove that my disastrous sense that somehow we have lost our way in South Africa that from that glorious beginning with Nelson Mandela, we have just gone progressively more and more in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. which is certainly been borne out now by the catalogue of disasters, starting with Mbeki and the whole issue of AIDS, the degree of political corruption that there is, our inadequate relationship with Zimbabwe, uh, uh, our neighbouring country and its brutalisation of its own citizens and to, to watch this happen to my own country was just so much that I, I, th I made sweeping statements which I now regret and apologise for I don't know how accurate my words are quoted or not but I'm quite prepared to believe that I extended my I was thinking of fellow South African playwriting very definitely not is not, it's not doing what 
the arts did in the old South Africa. In the old apartheid South Africa, artists, writers like Nadine Gordema, Andre Brink, myself, J.M. Kutsia, um, play poets and painters, we, somehow we all mounted an assault on the system. And I think we played a very significant role in bringing South Africa to a point where it realized that it wasn't bombs and bullets which was going to get us out of our mess, but dialogue, talking. And we succeeded. We ended up, Mandela sat down at a table, as we are sitting at a table, opposite the very people who had jailed him, and it was on the basis of talking to them, them listening, them talking to him, that a new South Africa was forged. Leaving aside the Guardian piece, there's often a discussion of whether art can change the world or whether art is merely a reflection or interpretation of the world as it is. From what I hear you say, you have experienced it making change. I certainly believe we contributed to it. You know, change in a society is always the result of a whole complex of forces coming to bear on that society. Economic, political, I mean, in you know, it's what foreign outside gov- foreign governments do. What they, they, they what, what what price yeah, economic price you are paying for the policies you are pursuing? There's a whole complex of forces that come to bear on a society and make it change. That is how Russia changed as well. And heaven knows, Russia had some of the most magnificent, gives us some of the most magnificent examples of writers speaking out against the system. And there can be no question about it. They contributed to that change. Whether it was Solzhenitsyn or Anna Khomatova, the poet, they contributed to that change. And that is what the writers in South Africa did as well. So, as counterpoint to the way the Guardian characterized your opinions, let me ask you in the most positive sense... Are there writers for theatre that you know of who you believe are working and writing for change, wherever they may be? Well, I'm, I'm not too... I can't speak for the rest of the world. I can only speak for South Africa. And in South Africa, I think writers are still going through a process of trying to, to understand what is what is required of them. You see, in South Africa, one of the decisive moments in my career was when this group of men and women came to me and said, would you help us start a drama group in Port Elizabeth, which gave birth to Serpent Players, out of which John and Winston came. They made me aware that as a writer living at that moment in South Africa, with a gift, a talent for putting words on paper and making those words speak on a stage, that I had a moral responsibility to speak up, to demand attention. They made me aware of my obligation, my moral obligation as a writer in a situation like such as the one we faced in South Africa. It seems to me that in South Africa today, in the society we're living in today in South Africa, writers haven't yet woken up to the fact that we are 
living in a society which needs the writer to speak up against the many, many things that are going wrong in exactly and needs the vigilance of writers as much as the old South Africa needed the vigilance of writers. And so I can only speak for South Africa and it was very wrong of me to make a sweeping statement about other countries which I sort of was there by implication and I, I apologise to that to my fellow playwrights abroad but I certainly know that in South Africa today our playwrights are not I think addressing urgently enough the way our society is going wrong Let me change course completely back to the personal In 1982 our mutual friend Mel Gusso did a lengthy profile of you for the New Yorker magazine in which he wrote that, as you have already said, Master Harold was perhaps your most, was certainly your most personal play to date and it grappled with an issue that you'd been fighting with according to the article since you were 10 years old and how did you deal with that? It seems to me subsequent to that there have been other directly personal plays. The Captain's Tiger in which you write about both your leaving home, yet your relationship to your mother. Um, do you feel that in the post-Master Harold period, you were able to deal more directly with your own personal stories than you had previously? Yes, I did. That's a, You put it very well. I do feel that after Master Harold and the boys... I was able to move him. Because you see, what I realized with Master Harold in The Boys is that I had used the stage in a way um, to write the first chapter of a biography. Because The Captain's Tiger is another chapter of that. You were to trace the Master Harold and The Boys is the same character as the Captain's Tiger, who is now trying to write novels, a novel about his mother. And there have been a couple of subsequent episodes in the life of the writer that I have used the stage to talk about. If you look at a play of mine called Exits and Entrances, there again you've got this young writer now writing plays, acting as a dresser to a famous actor, but there he is again. And so I've logged. I have ended up writing my biography in the form of plays. I was also struck, as I was reading through some of the more recent plays, not all of which I'd had the opportunity to see, that in one case you really wrote a sequel. The character from Valley Song, who we saw as a young woman, so exuberant, looking to leave her home, we then see, years later, when she comes back. And I'm wondering, in the case of your own story, certainly, there are chapters in a story that has already been told, you're setting it down in the way you choose. Do you have an urge to revisit characters often? Are there other characters you'd like to go back and spend more time with? Um, 
I'd like to go back to myself once more time. Sure. But in terms of Valley Song and Coming Home, um, I wrote Valley Song in the first flush and euphoria of the new South Africa. I tried to write a play, and I think I partly succeeded, that would reflect the optimism and the sense of a new future opening up for young South Africans. And this young woman who goes to the city to try and try her luck as a singer and become a, a singer represented for me the fact that there were new opportunities suddenly for South Africans who had been underprivileged for all, for all the centuries that had preceded that moment. And it came out of an... It was also written as, with an act of faith in the new South Africa. The disillusionment that set in as time passed made me realise that I needed or I wanted to personally for my own satisfaction get the record straight that it was not as simple as as she thought it was as Veronica the character's name is Veronica as Veronica thought it would be that in fact the new South Africa wasn't a land of promises it was a land of violence of AIDS and all of which she becomes a victim of and which forces her to return to a village and for me that was a true reflection of what has happened to, the, to that promise we all made to ourselves or that we all lived with when Nelson Mandela walked out of jail. I want to come back to the word you used early on about appointments. You have published some of your notebooks about your own life, about thoughts, about plays. You've written about writing. Are there other appointments that you just have that you want to go work on or do you discover ultimately that you've had an appointment? No, there are appointments. There mm -hmm. are appointments which in some form or the other I must deal with before before it's, it's, it's all over finally. Um, and I'm, I'm now that I've, I've told you I've, I've written a new play called The Blue Iris since uh, The Train Driver and I'm going through a healthy period at the moment of just lying fallow and looking at my appointment book. And I'm doing that by way of going through my unpublished notebooks, the notebooks subsequent to the published ones, um, that collection, and uh, putting together what I think is going to be a collection of notebooks that will form the next published volume. But at the same time, just checking on all the appointments that I've still, <laughs> I still have a sense that I've got to keep. I mean, I know that there are too many for me to keep in the life that, at the time that's left for me. So I'm going to have to choose very carefully. And I don't doubt that I will because I've really made a mistake about when I chose to write a play that the moment has come for it. Hmm. I want to take my prerogative to ask a very specific question about Master Harold and the Boys. It's one of your one of the plays of yours that I first saw, and certainly as you say, an important play for you. I saw the original production 
at the Yale Repertory Theater, original U.S. production, in which the part of Halley was played by a young Jalko Ivanik. He only played it for those three or four weeks in New Haven, and because of a film commitment, had to leave the production and was replaced by Lonnie Price. The performances of those two actors gave me very different feelings about the play and about what happened to that boy. When I saw Jelko, I saw a young man who had made a decision about the life that he was going to lead and that he had broken with these men who had raised him perhaps more so than his own parents. In Lonnie's performance, I saw a young man who lashed out but was uncertain. Since Halley is Athel Fugard, where in the play is that young man? Has he turned an irrevocable corner, or is there still hope? No, I think that you, you put it very accurately. I think that Lonnie reflected the intention I had in writing that play. That if the Halley in Master Harold and the Boys is Athel Fugard, I'd hate to believe that I left that stage. Are we talking about well, what decision? I'm sorry, I may be misunderstanding you. What decision has Jelka made in that play? I saw it as that when the character leaves, he has decided to accept the racism in which yes, he'd no, been well, surrounded. No, it's, it should be the other way. It should be the way Lonnie, that Lonnie played it. That was my intention. Hmm. That there was a chance, that there was a chance that this little boy would learn from what had happened to him that afternoon and would maybe go on to be, to emancipate himself slowly and in stages because indoctrination such as you experienced in South Africa as a young white boy in those years was very profound and very deep. You know what the Jesuits say, give me those first seven years and you can have the rest. Well, it was the same in South Africa. The lasting effect of those early years and the indoctrination I experienced in South Africa had been very long-lasting. But I have tried step by step by step to emancipate myself. And that was the intention I was hoping you would read into Halley's exit from that play, that maybe, maybe the extraordinary generosity of Sam will actually somehow redeem him, help him redeem himself. And he was redeemed because here we sit with <laughs> Harold Athol Fugard, Master Halley, once upon a time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for spending this time today with us on Downstage Sound. No, it's been very important. It's been like a stock-taking for me. And I must say, your questions were so so wide-ranging and wonderful. Well, I do value that, and I do appreciate it. Thank you. 
Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. And also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.